Welcome to Theology for the People. This is the show where we bring theological matters down to uh, the level where anybody can understand them, but not just understand what they mean. We also want to talk about why they're important for everyday life and why they're important for us to care about. And so today, my guest is Shane England from Ennis, Ireland. Hey, Shane, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Yeah, Shane, you've been on before and really enjoyed our conversations and I found them you know, instructive. A lot of our listeners gave great feedback as well. So, so glad that you're joining us again. And Shane, could you maybe just give our listeners a brief history of, of who you are, your studies, your, your ministry experience, what you're up to now? No problem. So after graduating from university, I did my undergraduate in history. I spent a year with IFES, which is the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. I did an internship in Dublin, Ireland. And then I moved to Ukraine, to the city of Kharkiv, where I spent four years working with IFES and also with a Calvary Chapel church in that city. And after four years there, my wife and I, we went back to Ireland. We spent a few years with Mike in Calvary Cork. And then I went to Dallas, Texas to do a master's in theology. So my emphasis was historical theology. And I did that for four years. And then after graduating, returned to Ireland, where I am currently working with a church here as a teaching elder. So, you know, preaching and teaching and helping out with the the running of the local church here in Ennis and also working full-time outside of ministry. Just that's what bivocational ministry in the West of Ireland typically looks like for smaller churches. So that's, that's what I might doing at the moment. Excellent. Yeah. And I think that, you know, your experience in Ukraine and your experience with studying history and historical Mm. theology, I think that's really relevant to what we're going to be talking about today, which is how did the reformation affect the Orthodox church? And Mm. it seems to me that many people assume that the reformation was a, a movement that took place only in the Western church affecting the Roman Catholic Church. It was essentially a reformation of the Roman Catholic Church, and it did not really have any impact on the Eastern Church, meaning the Orthodox churches of the East. Um, I think that many people just assume that that maybe even in the East, they just were totally unaffected by it, maybe didn't even know about it. Even to this day, I've, I've heard people claim that the Orthodox Christians don't really have any idea what the Reformation was all about. So maybe you could talk to us about that. I mean, what effects did the Reformation have on Eastern Orthodox uh, churches? It is a good question. Yeah. So to begin with, I suppose in the West, we typically perceive the Great Schism as happening, you know, around the 16th century with Martin Luther and the you know, the 95 Theses, the the subsequent events that led to the European Reformation. But obviously, when you look at the Eastern churches, they they would view the Great Schism as 1054, if they're part of the Eastern Orthodox churches, or 451, if they're part of the Orthodox Coptic church, or 431, if they're part of the Oriental Orthodox churches. So they would view these schisms as much more ancient and much more fundamental. The schisms particularly in the 5th century, had to do with Christology and politics. The Great Schism in the 11th century had to do a lot with politics, and obviously there were some theological questions thrown in there as well. So, yeah, I think sometimes in the West we can forget about all that history and simply view the church as 
getting along harmoniously until Martin Luther caused a big ruckus. The Eastern Church would have a very different view of that. Um, now, it is interesting in the, in the years leading up to the Reformation, great attempts were made to reunify the Church. And I think the West is also maybe not so clear on that, but the Council of Florence in the 15th century achieved, on paper anyway, a reunification of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, when the delegation returns to Constantinople in the East, there were problems with that, and you know it never really came to much. But there were several attempts, and you know the churches got very close at times to reunifying, and and that is something too we forget about is that there were serious attempts to make this um, a unified church leading up to the Reformation. But obviously then when the Reformation occurred in Europe and the, the schisms and the splits that emerge from that, that tends to be our primary focus when we talk about Reformation, that it's a European question addressing European problems. Mm. Did it have any impact on the East? Well, surprisingly it did. Not to a great extent, although I think there are some very interesting people, even to the highest echelons of Eastern Orthodox church leadership, such as the Patriarch of Constantinople, who became reformed Calvinists. But the questions, you know, did that, why didn't that last? Or what opposition did it face? I think is very interesting because there were some unique circumstances in the East that resulted in a different path or a different history looking at these questions. And also there is a radically different history of interpretation and theology coming to these questions that Martin Luther was asking in the Eastern churches. It has been said that, you know, the Eastern church doesn't share with the West, it doesn't the West's view of anthropology as defined by Augustine. It doesn't share the West's early views of soteriology as defined by Anselm of Canterbury, and it doesn't even share the West's methodology as refined by Thomas Aquinas. So Western theology has taken some different shapes and different avenues than the East has. And so the questions of the Reformation surely would never have been answered in the same way in the East because they had developed a particularly Eastern dogmatic school and tradition that was not shared in the West. The West had different ways of asking the same questions. And so that has to be taken into consideration as well when we look at the Reformation. Mm. Yeah, I guess, you know, what they, you know, it's interesting to me that you mentioned the Council of Florence and all these things because, um, you know, I think that it's really hard to comprehend the idea that the Eastern Orthodox churches would kind of submit to yeah. papal hegemony, if you will, right? Like they the, had, yes, yeah, and they had several times, hmm. and the reason was because of the Ottoman yes. threat. Whenever Constantinople seemed like it was going to fall, you know, the Catholic Church would remind them, you know, the the Western powers would love to help you. And we would send an armada of ships and weapons from Genoa to Canterbury or to from Paris. But we need to settle this huge dogmatic question of the unity of the church. And so obviously when the pressure was on, Eastern patriarchs were much more amicable to the question of unity. But, you know, that again, you have to understand the history of, of what was happening at this time. And it seems that, you know, I think a lot of people would say that the Reformation in the West, in the in Europe, it, it took place as a result of things that were in process already at the time, right? 
And and yeah. so cultural movements that were in process at the mm. time gave yes. birth to the Reformation. And yet yep. it seems that one of the things you're saying, which I think is absolutely right, is that those cultural movements that were taking place had been yes. influenced by the Western church. And so in a way, the Western church lit the spark that oh, yeah. gave birth to its own Reformation. Yeah, absolutely. Luther, Melanchthon, and the great theologians of Germany, they regarded themselves as Catholic Christians reforming the Catholic Church. They absolutely did not set out to reinvent Christianity. They, they saw themselves as, you know, reforming Christianity according to what they regarded as Western orthodoxy. Now, it is interesting that Martin Luther, in his first great debate against Johannes Leipzig, 1519, when they had this dispute over indulgences, Eck kept pressing him, are you a schismatic? Are you basically trying to break the church? And that's a serious question because this is prior to Luther's excommunication. And, you know, he's still an Augustinian friar. He's, he thinks that he's still a, a Catholic in good standing. But Luther makes the remark that the church is split and the church has to ask questions in the West that the, quest, the church in the East has already asked, particularly of papal authority and papal supremacy. And Martin Luther said the Eastern Church for 1400 years at this time has rejected the concepts of papal infallibility or papal supremacy, should I say. The Western Church since the 12th century had gradually developed. Luther was keenly aware that, yes, there is, a, there is also a tradition of Christianity in the East that has a radically different view of how the church should be structured. And he used that as part of his defense. And so even in the very beginnings of the Reformation, there was this idea that the reformers weren't breaking apart something perfect. There were already voices of Protestantism, as they would have said, in the East, the voices that had a long ancient theological pedigree, going back to Gregory Nazianzus, you know, going back to the Cappadocian fathers, going back to Athanasius, that did not formulate their understanding of the church as you know the, mid, the high medieval church in, in, in Western Europe did. So that that is something that the reformers used as a weapon to say, you know, we're not the ones that have just started asking these questions. People have asked these questions for 1,400 years before us, some of the greatest theologians of the church in the Eastern Church, and they've come to radically different answers. And so that was important for them to even put the, the question of reform in the broader ecumenical consensus and picture of church history. Yeah, so in a way, what you're saying, too, is that the Eastern Church had an influence on the Reformation and yeah, on, on you could say that they were used by the reformers. It is interesting, though, that one of the great movers and one of the great impetuses for reformation in the church is the study of scripture in the original languages. When Constantinople fell in 1453, there was an exodus of Greek scholars, Greek theologians, Greek philosophers, Greek scholars. They left Constantinople because it was now a Muslim city. It was the, the fall of the Western Christian Empire, and they moved to places like Venice, they moved to places like Padua, they moved into, into Europe, and this was the birth of the humanism movement. You had people like Lorenzo Valla, one of these great early humanists, that began to study Greek, that began to study the biblical languages, and that you know later was taken up by Erasmus, and certainly Martin Luther was heavily influenced by this movement in terms of desire to understand the Bible in the original languages and Greek manuscripts and Greek learning, the Eastern Church gave so many 
uh, gifts, you could say, to the Western church that opened up for them a whole avenue, not just of biblical study, but also of patristics study. Martin Luther, Jean Calvin, Erasmus were as interested in what the early church had to say about these questions as what the Greek New Testament had to say. And so Erasmus particularly spent mo more time editing the early church fathers than he did editing the Greek New Testament. I mean, his, mm. his works of St. Jerome and some of the early church fathers were voluminous because they, they had this idea to get back to the sources, ad fontes. Mm -hmm. And you could say that the fall of Constantinople in some way sort of helped that. It gave a rebirth of Greek learning in the West that it, it had not had for centuries. Mm, fascinating. So tell us a little bit about, like, did the Reformation reach the East and, and where and how? Yes, it did. It's, it did. And it started with, you could say, Martin Luther bringing up the question of the Eastern Church right at the beginning at the Leipzig Disputation. You know, what about the East? What about the Greek Church? He said, you know, to Johannes Eck, I might condemn all of the Greek fathers. I might condemn Gregory of Nazianzus. I might condemn Athanasius because they didn't hold to papal supremacy. So it was an important question. The great theologians of the Lutheran tradition, such as Philip Melanchthon, we could say somewhat naively, perhaps, had this idea that the Eastern Church would readily embrace the position of the Reformers because there were certain things that they already agreed on, such as this idea that papal supremacy was, was not the historical position of the church. And so you could say, well, yeah, maybe they shared that position, but there was a whole other uh, body of theology that they didn't share. But there was this enthusiasm amongst early reformers to reach out to the Eastern Church. And Philip Melanchthon, he translated the Augsburg Confession from Latin into Greek, and, you know, the, the University of Tübingen in Germany was a center of Greek learning. And so they had Greek scholars there, Lutheran scholars that knew Greek well enough to communicate and write and translate Lutheran works into Greek and send them to the, the spiritual home of Eastern Orthodoxy at this time, Constantinople, which although was ruled by the Muslim Ottomans, it was still the place where the ecumenical patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church resided. And so that would have been seen as their uh, spiritual home. And so there were attempts early on, even in, you know, the, by 1530, to send the Augsburg Confession, to send Lutheran works translated into Greek. This initial outreach didn't receive anything, even a response from the ecumenical patriarch. It's difficult to know what they thought at this time, what's, you know, what's happening in Germany. Maybe they, they had very little information because the Eastern Orthodox Church at this time, while it does have a tremendous historical legacy of great theologians, it's sad to say when we get to the 16th century, it's not a, it's not a good time. They, there's very little in terms of scholarly studies in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Most bishops are not um, preaching from the scriptures or either reading theology. And that's because of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the Eastern Orthodox Church is, is struggling to survive its existence in a, in a Muslim culture. And so they don't have great time to devote to, you know, expanding their theology or even keeping up with what's happening in the West. So there is that to keep in mind. But later on in the 1572 and up until about 50, 1579, Tübingen University, again in Germany, they wouldn't take no for an answer. They hadn't heard anything back from Constantinople. So they, two great theologians there, Jakob Andreas and Martin Krauss, 
Martin Krauss was a tremendous Greek scholar. He, he was a Lutheran scholar that he could take down dictation in Greek. He could, you know, translate on the fly. They set about again writing letters to the ecumenical patriarch, who was a man called Jeremiah II, and they did that basically to outline this correspondence. And we have copies of this correspondence. You can read it. It is fascinating. They set out to outline what are the main teachings of the Lutheran Church? What are the components of the Reformation? What are the questions they're asking? They looked at salvation, sola fide, sola scriptura. They, they basically tried to write in Greek what they were teaching in Germany, and they sent it to Jeremiah II. Now, of all the patriarchs to receive this correspondence, Jeremiah II is probably not the right guy. I would say it's fair to say he's a reactionary. He's his view of theology is that the Eastern Orthodox Church needs to survive. You know, they need to batten down the hatches. They need to resist Muslim persecution. They need to resist Roman Catholicism and this crazy German theology, whatever that is. They need to resist that. And this is the same guy that held a council that condemns the Gregorian calendar as the work of atheism. So arch-conservative, not very open to new ideas. But in fairness to him, he did read what Martin Krauss and Andreas um, sent to him, and he took the time to respond. And he said, yeah, there are some things we agree on. He said he appreciated the, the emphasis that the, the Lutherans put on patristic theology. He said, I, I can appreciate that you are wrestling with the history of interpretation, and that it's not just that you're making these things up, that you are actually looking with the early church fathers say. And he said, I appreciate that. And he said, yes, certainly we agree that the question of papal supremacy as defined by the Catholic Church at this time in the 16th century is not consistent with how they understood the historic faith. But he said, the main question is justification. And he says the Eastern Orthodox Church cannot accept a view of justification that is sola fide, that is by faith alone, and that is by grace alone. And he said, works need grace and grace need works, but you cannot have a salvation that is by grace alone. It must be accomplished by, by works, working in tandem with faith and obviously empowered by God's grace. But they had a radically different idea of, of what it means to be justified. For, for Jeremiah II, God would never declare a sinner justified. He would declare a sinner who had repented and live the holy life justified. From the Lutheran perspective, that, that is the issue, that God actually does declare a sinner righteous. And, and that is the great breakthrough of Luther, that it is a imputation of the righteousness of Christ upon the sinner. It is Romans 4, 5. It is it's not the one that works that is declared justified. And that, that, that obviously is a huge question. So Jeremiah wrote back explaining where he differed. The Lutherans at Tübingen, were so excited to receive correspondence back. They wrote again, tried to defend their position, and they wrote and exchanged letters three more times. But in the end, Jeremiah said, don't write to me anymore. I've said what I have to say. He said, your view of justification is a theological novum. It's a departure from the consensus of the fathers. And so for that reason alone, it's, it's unorthodox. Um, the theologians of Tübingen had said, is not doctrinal development a valid category? Look at Eastern Orthodoxy. Look at the writings of Gregory Palamas. Look how much he developed, you could say, even from the tradition of the fathers that went before him. 
And Jeremiah said, yeah, within limits, there is doctrine development. But he said, you guys have gone too far. I don't recognize this as orthodox. And so there was a valiant attempt, but that really was as far as it got at that time. And Jeremiah, he shut down the conversation. But even from the get-go, you can sense early Lutherism had a very, we, we might say, or I might say naive, but maybe I'm just too pessimistic. I mean, Luther, to, to his credit, he even thought the Jewish people would embrace his view of the gospel because it was, it was so radical from medieval um, Catholicism. He felt that that was, it was surely, this would be embraced by Judaism. And when it wasn't, obviously he, he responded with some extreme anger and anti-Semitism towards the, the Jewish people for rejecting the gospel. So maybe there was a bit of naivety that they thought Eastern Orthodoxy would just get on board, but there were attempts to, to reach out at least at this early stage. So do you think that Jeremiah's response was characteristic of like, this is what all Eastern Orthodox patriarchs and, and theologians would have, would have agreed with? Or do you think that this was his view and maybe it represented some, cons, you know, some part of Eastern Orthodox thinking, but it wasn't necessarily uh, across yeah. the board? Yeah, I think that's fair. Look, Eastern Orthodox dogmatics, generally has very little to say about justification. It's interesting for us, obviously, that's a, that's one of the cardinal doctrines of our faith. Even prior to the Reformation, Western theologians, going back to Augustine, have, have made that a centerpiece of the gospel. Eastern Orthodoxy, surprisingly, has historically had very little to say about the doctrine of justification. Now, certain some early Eastern fathers, Chrysostom, Gregory of Nazianzus, they do talk about it to a certain degree, but not to the same degree that Augustine or Caesarius of Arlay or other uh, Western fathers would. There are different emphases within Eastern Orthodoxy concerning the work of salvation. It tends to be much more on a cosmic level. They use the language of deification, a theosis, which interestingly, so does Jean Calvin. Jean Calvin, in his commentaries on First John, explicitly talks in the same way, which I think is interesting. But yeah, Jeremiah's response, I think, was certainly a response of that time. It was very polemical. Was it was it very reasoned and well thought out? I think, I don't think so. I don't think it was a very articulate argument. I think at times it was simply, you know, just shutting down the argument with very, very little serious wrestling with the fundamental questions of how God does justify a sinner. I don't think that was ever addressed. And I think there were certain weaknesses within the Eastern Orthodox methodology, such as the Seventh Ecumenical Council's decree that scripture had to be interpreted in line with the patristic consensus. But patristic consensus is such a fluid concept because what does that mean? Does patristic consensus, in other words, the church fathers, what the church fathers all said, does that simply mean what Greek church fathers say? Or does it mean what church fathers in the church say collectively? If that's the case, then I think Augustine is much closer to what Tübingen had to say concerning the role of grace as a supreme act of God's sovereignty and justification rather than what Jeremiah was saying. But yeah, those were questions that they that they had to wrestle with. Mm. Yeah, and I do want to talk about methodology. That's that was my focus in my area of study for for my seminary yeah. degree. And I think it comes into play here really importantly. But let me ask you first, were there any Eastern Orthodox bishops or or leaders yes. who did respond yeah. favorably to the Reformation? Yes, there were. And 
There were several, but I think the the one that we need to talk about is Cyril Lucaris. This was a man I'd never heard of until I went to seminary and, and started studying church history. And I was blown away because his story is fascinating. He is from a family of, in Crete. His uncle was the Patriarch of Alexandria, which in the Eastern Orthodox Church is, is an extremely exalted and respected position. So his uncle, Miletius, he brought Cyril into the church and got him assigned a job to go to modern-day Poland, eastern Ukraine, to try and prevent the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches reuniting. There was that, obviously, that union of Brest, if you know church history, the unionate churches, which are still there. These were Eastern Orthodox churches that did agree to come back into communion with the Pope. They could keep their, their liturgy and even their canonical law. They just had to agree to the idea of papal supremacy and that is yeah. still still there in eastern europe yeah we have that uh, in in hungary we call it greek catholicism but i know greek it's catholicism unionate yes. so this is mostly found in like would it be western ukraine yeah hungary where else where else poland find these churches yeah yeah poland and it's fascinating because some people think that you uh, catholic priests can't marry well they, they can only not marry according to the Latin rite, but yeah. there are plenty of Catholic priests that have families, but they're part of the Greek rite, which are still in full communion with Rome. But Cyril was sent there to try and prevent this, but he failed. What he came away was with this realization that the Eastern Orthodox Church was in trouble, and their clergy were vastly uneducated, and that's because they had suffered under under Muslim occupation. This is not a, a time of great learning or freedom for Eastern Orthodox Christians. But he was convinced that the Eastern Orthodox Church needed to study and to equip its leadership in order to survive. And Cyril was a man who was highly educated. He had been sent by his uncle to study in Venice and in Padua in Italy. So he had been exposed even to, to humanism and to this idea of studying the scriptures and going back to the sources. And so he came away with all of that. He was eventually elected as the Patriarch of Alexandria as a 29-year-old. So I think that gives you some idea of how desperate the Eastern Orthodox Church is at this time, that you have a 29-year-old in a, such a, in a prestigious position, because he obviously was highly educated. There weren't very many other bishops that had that exposure and education, so he was the right man for the job. When he was the Patriarch of Constantinople, he or of Alexandria, rather, he had spent some time in Constantinople, and there he Constantinople, he had met a lot of Western diplomats, particularly from the Netherlands and from Britain. And he asked them, he said, do you have any books by evangelical scholars, Lutheran, Calvinists, Reformed, any theologians? And so that he met one guy, Cornelius van Halle, Dutch diplomat, and he said, yeah, I can hook you up with some books. So, you know, Cyril Lacars got his hands on a copy of Jean Calvin's Institutes and some of Luther's works. And began to study them and really began to see a whole other avenue of Christianity. And it was mind-blowing for him because he said that we had never been exposed to this in Eastern Orthodoxy. He said, really, we had a caricature of what the Reformation was about. You know, we didn't understand any of the teachings of the Reformers because we'd never been able to read any of their works. And we just heard secondhand what these people were about. We had no idea. He was then promoted to Patriarch of Constantinople, which is the, the highest seat of ecclesiastical rule in Eastern Orthodoxy. So he would be seen as the, the first among equals amongst all the ancient patriarchates. And so this was the highest position you could have in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And his, his theological revolution kept going at this time. And he more or less became reformed in his understanding of theology. And 
Yet he identified as Eastern Orthodox. He said, you know, when I die, I die as an Orthodox Christian. He said, but I can affirm the teaching of the Reformers. So it, it, he would not have said that I, I became Lutheran. He, he said, I'm, I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian. In fact, I'm the patriarch of Constantinople, and this is the church that I love, and this is the church that I, that I serve. But he said, my understanding of theology, you know, it has, has radically been impacted by the study of Scripture and by the early church and certainly by the Reformers. So he produced a confession of faith. And in order to do that, he needed a printing press. So the, the first Greek printing press that he set up in Constantinople, he hoped to produce some works in Greek for the church, but he faced enormous opposition from the Catholic church in Constantinople because there were big fears at this time by the Catholic church that if the Eastern Orthodox church was going to continue under a man by Cyril Lucaris, you could potentially have a reunification of the Lutheran, Reformed, and Eastern Orthodox churches, which would be serious trouble, because this is at the height of the Counter-Reformation. And so the Jesuits uh, in Constantinople were very vocal in opposing anything that Cyril Lucaris was trying to do. They got the Muslim authorities to shut down the printing press. But again, the Dutch diplomats, they said that we can get your works printed in Geneva. So Cyril Lucaris's confession was printed in Geneva, first in Latin and then in Greek. And you can, you can read a copy. It's readily available online. And it is, it is overtly reformed. His understanding of justification is, is clearly articulated along the lines of imputation, um, that it is faith is the open hand to receive the righteousness of God. It is not something that we add to through merit or maintain through works, it is received by grace alone. He said that scripture is the highest authority for the church. Yes, church councils and the church fathers are important, but he said the church has historically made mistakes and so have the church fathers. So if we are to articulate orthodox theology, it must be through the only infallible source, which is holy scripture. Uh, which again is is amazing to read that this is the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople writing around the year uh, you know 1630. He's writing these things. I think it's absolutely amazing. His his confession though isn't just cut and paste John Calvin. There are mm. areas of differences. Icons, you know, in Eastern Orthodoxy, the the question of iconography is huge. The Seventh Ecumenical Council gave a definitive ruling on the place of icons for the, the Greek church, which was dogmatically affirmed and anathemas, obviously repeated for those who would deny that. And it's important, just for your listeners, that Eastern Orthodox dogmatics does not regard icons as art. Mm-hmm. They regard it as, as canonical, as a source of God mediating grace as absolutely essential to the church's teaching and also to our worship. So that 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 we're not talking about simply painting. Okay, this is something much more uh, important in Eastern Orthodoxy. But Cyril Lucaris in his confession says, "What about the question of icons?" And he affirmed the role of icons. Calvin would have been very strong against that. You know, traditionally in the in the Reformed churches obviously less so within Lutherism, but within the Reformed churches, particularly those influenced by Jean Calvin, they would have come out very strong against the use of icons, particularly of Jesus, as idolatrous, more or less. I mean, there was very little gray area in the Reformed tradition. But Lucara said, no, they are okay. 
but he said that they shouldn't be worshipped, they shouldn't be adored, they, they're not objects of adoration. They are artistic. So he uses the language of art, which is not typically how Eastern Orthodox theologians would describe icons, but he says that they are aids to the memory, they are aids to piety, but he gives strict warning against how they could be used as, as idols. And the second thing that he doesn't agree with, with his reformed colleagues, you could say, or with the reformed tradition, is the question of the filioque. Now, if if you know anything about church history, that is like the greatest shibboleth in Eastern Orthodoxy, yeah. the filioque. And if, maybe if your readers are thinking like, what is a filioque and where can I get one? It, <laughs> it's simply, it's simply, uh, it's a single word in Latin, filioque, you know, means and the son and the son of God. And it's, it was added to the creed and it's to do with the procession of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and in the Latin creed, they added and the son. Eastern Orthodoxy used that as a classic case of heresy within the West because the Western church by themselves changed an ecumenical creed yeah. outside of an ecumenical council. And it's, it's seen as one of these, you know, kind of test cases, you know, you know, can, can the Western church ever be truly Orthodox? Interestingly, Cyril Lacaris rejects the addition of the filioque. He maintains that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father although he does use the language from the Father through the Son, mm. which is acceptable within yeah. Eastern Orthodox dogmatics, but he does not adopt a simple dual source procession of the Holy Spirit. So I think that is interesting because he's not simply abandoning Eastern Orthodoxy as a whole. He identified his need to the Eastern Orthodox Christian right up until his he's murder. And there were, I think, Eastern Orthodox emphases that he maintained. He maintained that it was okay to use icons, Within limits, he did obviously warn Christians that they could become sources of idolatry, but he didn't he didn't legislate for their removal from churches. And he stuck to his guns when it came to the filioque, which would have kept a lot of the Eastern Orthodox Christians very happy because that that one thing just really sets them off. Yeah. That was such a that was such a, a huge question. And that was really one of the questions that was uh, asked, you know, during the Great Schism of 1054, what about the the addition to the creed. So he stuck to his guns on that. Now, having produced those works incredibly, he went further. He produced a modern Greek New Testament. And again, this is incredible for the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople to do this. And the reason he did this was he, he got uh, great Greek scholars alongside him, uh, a great scholar, Maximus of Gallipoli, and his desire, because what he saw in Poland, what he saw in Hungary and Western Ukraine was Eastern Orthodox clergy, completely illiterate when it came to the Bible, but also the congregations not understanding anything of the liturgy, the words, the archaic language. So he took it upon himself to produce a New Testament that was what we call a diglot. A diglot is, is a book written with typically two languages, but Cyril Lacaris's New Testament was Greek. But on the left column, it was modern Greek. It was a modern version. And on the right-hand column, it was the, it was the Textus Receptus, the received text of the, of, the, of the Greek Bible. But he did this, and he produced the Bible with footnotes, cross-references, to put in the hands not just of the clergy, but of the laity, because he felt that this is the way for the Orthodox Church to get back to orthodoxy. Mm. Um, he didn't see it as a way to get closer to Lutheranism, or Calvin, he said, this is a way to get back to orthodoxy. And he spent a lot of time trying to produce this Bible, but sadly, he never got to see it printed. It was printed in Geneva, 
and copies were sent east. But by the time it got to the east, he had already been murdered by the by the Ottoman government, mainly because of the um, the work of the of the Catholic Church, who had put a, a pressure on the Ottoman Empire to kill this man because they saw him as a as a real danger to the counter-reformation and the Jesuits were very vocal in their opposition to him. So he was martyred, he was garroted, he was strangled and his body was thrown in the Bosphorus. Now, we're told that the people that lived in Constantinople, they they did not, re- the, the Greek Christians I'm speaking about here, they regarded Cyril Lucaris as a true patriarch. They did not regard him as some sort of a Western corrupted uh Lutheran or something, they regarded him as the true ecumenical patriarch, and they were devastated to see him murdered, and they requested the body. It was taken out of the Bosporus, it was reburied, great honor was done to him. And even today, he is regarded as a martyr within the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, there are ceremonies in 2009 commemorating him for laying down his life for Eastern Orthodoxy. So the Eastern Orthodox Church has a very, I think, difficult relationship with Cyril Lucaris. On the one hand, within his own lifetime, he was a stalwart defender of Eastern Orthodoxy, passionate about the church and its survival. But at the same time, his teaching was radically influenced by the Reformation to a huge and to the greatest extent. And so how the Eastern Orthodox Church responded to that is fascinating. There were various attempts to say that the works that came from Geneva were forged, that he never produced the confession, he never produced the Bible. Modern scholars reject that because we have, even within Lucaris's own handwriting, him talking about this confession and even copies of the confession annotated by his own hand. So it's clear that he did produce this work. His confession was condemned by Eastern Orthodox Count, the Council of Jerusalem, 1672, forbade the, the reading of the Bible by Eastern Orthodox Christians in the modern version. They also, you know, repudiated any view of justification by faith alone. So yeah, there were some pretty strong counter-reactions then in the centuries that followed. But he wasn't alone. There were other bishops. There was the Bishop of Ephesus at this time, who was also a stalwart a supporter of Cyril Lucaris, and even the, the later Patriarch of Alexandria described him as a, as, a true Orthodox, as a true Orthodox man. And so there were other theologians within Orthodoxy. Definitely a minority voice, but there were supporters of him, and they did view him as correcting what they saw as, as true Orthodox theology. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, so what I was mentioning earlier is that the idea of theological method. So just for some background, um, that was the focus of my study in my master's program at London School of Theology was integrative theology, <clears throat> which is, <clears throat> excuse me, integrative theology is the study of theological method and how it's applied throughout history and how it's yes. applied even nowadays. And so in many ways, of course, perhaps I'm biased because that was the focus of my study and I kind of see mm. it everywhere behind every bush and <laughs> et cetera. Yes. But yes. I, I can't help but think that this is a matter that has a lot to do with theological method. So mm. what theological method is, and I have a previous episode on this. It's actually my most listened to episode on this podcast. So if anybody's interested in looking for it, just uh, search back into season one and find the episode on theological method and why Christians come to different conclusions about the Bible and theology. And the reason is because there are generally about five recognized sources of theology. During the Reformation, they would have recognized three 
Wesley mm. aided in the recognition of a fourth, that being experience. So the experience. three, mm. yeah, the three that were recognized by the Reformation period, and I would say even by, I would assume by the Orthodox Church, would have been scripture, tradition, mm. and reason. So then mm. along comes John Wesley. He argues for the addition of a fourth source of theology, which is experience, which is where we get what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And then nowadays, like particularly in the 20th century, a lot of theologians have argued that we should add a fifth, and rather than a quadrilateral, we call it a quintilateral, and it should be community, because community is a form of experience, it can be a form of tradition, and yet it has its own unique aspects. So to this point, you know, you could say that the Reformation was really an argument about theological method, which means that which of these sources of theology should take primacy over the other sources in an applied theological method, meaning how we do theology. Essentially, what Luther was saying is he was arguing for what we might better call a prima scriptura, right? We, it, You know, it's it's hard to have uh, four solas and a prima, so it sounds better to have. <laughs> yeah, um, but the uh, Anglican Church has has always used the terminology of prima scriptura instead, and so they they would say, and really, this is what Luther was arguing for: is that tradition should be subject to critique by Scripture. Yes, and and yet this was really this is really where the the reformation really kind of the two sides butted up against each other and i can see it at play here in the discussion of the orthodox church as well yeah but the orthodox church today if you were to analyze their theological method it's definitely one as you mentioned i think you said the seventh ecumenical council decided that all scripture must be interpreted through the writings of the church fathers but as you as you rightly pointed out the question is which church fathers and so that forms a theological method which is where we we actually take the starting point of theology with the traditions of the fathers as opposed to with scripture. And I think you could even trace the filioque controversy back mm -hmm. to theological method where the Western church in, in kind of a nascent way is saying, actually, maybe we do view, you know, scripture. We, we should go back to the source, if you will, ad fontes and, and say, okay, does scripture say that it, it, this, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that was kind of their conclusion. Well, the Scripture says this, and of course, the Orthodox were upset that they went about it the way that they did, and yep. they didn't like them changing something that had been decided. Yes. So, all that to say, to me, and perhaps it is because, right, the the idea that when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, but I can't help <laughs> but see the, yeah. the concept here that theological method is vastly important yes. in mm -hmm the Reformation, and also perhaps in, you mentioned Jeremiah's, like, mm -hmm. why he responded the way he did to the, to the Lutheran reformers. Yes, that's a very good point. It is fascinating. It, it, that is a good point, that the sources for theology are, 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 are hugely important, and the priority of our sources is, is hugely important. There is a sense of irony, though, with the Seventh Ecumenical Council. If you if you know the history of the iconoclast debate, many of the iconoduals, those theologians that supported the use of veneration of icons, they criticized the iconoclasts because they said that they were relying too much on the church fathers. Mm. 
because the iconoclasts could point out to a, a strong line of early church fathers that were very opposed to the use of any kind of iconography within churches, because they obviously came from a much earlier period of Christianity that was very fearful of paganism and idolatry. And the iconodules said, Scripture is so important on this question, and the question of the incarnation is so fundamental. And if you look at the writings of John of Damascus, he does attempt to make a scriptural case for the veneration of icons. Now, you could say he doesn't do a great job, but if you read in defense of icons, it's heavily attempting to draw scriptural, you could say, authority for that position. And it, it was slightly ironic that the theologians within Eastern Orthodoxy that were strongly opposed to it were the ones they said were strongly influenced more so by the church fathers. But I think, yeah, the, the idea of a patristic consensus, it should be important. And I think in Eastern Orthodoxy, it is, it is so valued. And I think beyond that, the, the idea of the ecumenical council is, is so fundamental to the understanding of Eastern Orthodoxy dogmatics. Yet, it is interesting that no ecumenical council gave a decision or a ruling on justification. Mm. So, within the Eastern Orthodoxy dogmatic system, there is a limitation, almost a self-imposed limitation by having such a strong view of the seven ecumenical councils, and obviously they, they do limit it to seven, they can have very little to say about justification, because none of the seven ecumenical councils looked at that question. They were primarily concerned with Christology, Trinitarianism, and obviously then the question of iconography, which some would say is inherently linked into Christology as well. But that that's sources of theology. You know, Eastern Orthodox theologians will say, we don't write systematic theologies the way the West does, because our systematic theology is the seven councils. That's, that's where Eastern Orthodox theology is extrapolated and defined. But that source has nothing to say explicitly about justification. So Jeremiah's position, I think, was, was quite weak. And the theologians at Tübingen were correct to say, you know, the seven ecumenical councils are, are great, but they don't look at this question in detail, or they don't give even an ecumenical position on this question. And so what we're saying is, you know, the, the, the church needs to look at this in a radically fresh way in light of what scripture is saying. And also, the Tübingen theologians were careful to say what the early church fathers had to say about this question too. So I think, yeah, that, that is it's hugely important. But when it comes to the question of justification, I do feel that Eastern Orthodoxy perhaps has almost shot itself in the foot a little bit because it, it, it doesn't have a great source to draw from if it's saying that its dogmatic definition of, of theology is the seven councils. The plus side, though, is because the seven ecumenical councils did not give a decision on justification, there is grounds for ecumenical discussion. There is grounds for the churches to look at this question in a way that Catholicism cannot. Catholicism gave a definitive ruling on justification at the Council of Trent, 1546. Now, obviously, there are questions of how does one interpret that infallible decree concerning justification. Hans Kung famously wrote his doctoral dissertation on justification within Roman Catholicism and came to the conclusion that it was Barthian. I'm not even sure how he came to that conclusion, but 
he he in his thesis he it's a it's a brilliant book but he he goes in to look at catholic dogmatics and basically reinterprets and redefines it to say that it's no different to what Karl Barth is teaching concerning the supremacy of of god's grace um so there is always questions how do you interpret infallible councils but i think yes the seven councils don't have anything to say explicitly about justification and so that that's a that's a negative for Eastern Orthodoxy because they cannot draw from that source of theology. And yet it's also a plus because they're not defined at a polemical moment in church history, the same way that Catholicism was. You know, Catholicism with Council Trent, the history of that council is fascinating. You know, the reformers, reformed theologians were invited to come along and to observe. There were strong arguments by cardinals in favor of a doctrine within Catholicism of a saved by grace alone, by faith alone, on the council floor, and there were votes taken, and there were fist fights, and people's beards were getting pulled. But yeah, it, it, it was a polemical moment. But Eastern Orthodoxy doesn't have that, because they never had that discussion in the early church. So I think there is almost a freedom within Eastern Orthodox dogmatics to look at this in a way that is not contained within that crisis moment of the Reformation. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then what would be kind of your final thoughts, takeaway that you would want to send people away with? I mean, would it be something along those lines? I would say, yeah. If if this is a question that is relevant to you, if you're ministering in a place of historic Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever, I think there is a great opportunity there to discuss these questions. And the early church fathers can be a great um, avenue for exploring those questions and how the early church uh, looked at it. And also, I think people like Cyril Lucaris, they sh- you know, that is part of the history of Eastern Orthodoxy as well. There were even ecumenical patriarchs that could identify as Eastern Orthodox and even die for their Eastern Orthodox faith, but write theology that was, I think, in agreement with what the reformers were also saying. So I think that is exciting, if anything. Awesome. Hey, thank you, Shane. And I I look forward to another episode coming out with you soon, which is going to be about St. Patrick of Ireland. So I encourage our listeners to tune in for that. And thank you so much for being with us and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge about orthodoxy, about history. I've been informed and encouraged, and I hope our listeners have too. Thank you, Nick. God bless you. Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women in minorities? Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics. And it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. To purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity at Amazon.com or visit nickkady.org. 